Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Now that likely will be the last time you hear me make that statement for quite some time. Because today we come to the end of our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful New Testament book. About 140 sermons ago, we began this Gospel with birth announcements. First of John the Baptist, and then of the Lord Jesus. And this book now concludes with Jesus ascending back into heaven having perfectly completed his mission here on earth. And for the last two Sundays, Brother Tony Richmond and I have been teaching on the walk to Emmaus, these two disciples of the Lord, one whose name, Cleopas, and one who is left anonymous. Um, They were full of disappointment. They said, we were hoping it was he, speaking of Jesus, that was going to be the one who redeemed Israel. And the risen Lord, now in his glorified body, approached them and inquired about what they were talking about, as if he didn't know. And they walked together to Emmaus, where they shared a meal with him. And around that campfire, eating that food, the Lord graciously taught them the truth from the scriptures and ultimately opened their eyes through fellowship. And in their excitement and zeal, overcoming their fatigue, having just walked seven miles, They turn around, walk seven miles back to Jerusalem, I suspect skipping and running more than walking. And they found the 11, the inner circle of disciples, and they said to them, we have seen Jesus with our own eyes, and he is really alive. That is, they affirmed what the women who saw Jesus said, and what Simon Peter said, and all the evidence that was around them that Jesus was not dead but alive, they said, it's all true. And that brings us now to our text, Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. While they were telling these things, that's Cleopas and his friend, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. They were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, 
praising God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his inspired word. What's the trouble? That's the title of the message today. That's the question that Jesus asked his inner circle of disciples when he appeared to them. Why are you troubled? Why are you doubting? Why are you fearful? We might expect them to be excited, overjoyed, and thrilled. After all, they've just been told by two eyewitnesses that everything that they'd heard already earlier in the day was true. Jesus was really alive, and yet they're not described as being thrilled or joyful. They're described as being fearful. All of the evidence pointed to the obvious truth that what Jesus prophesied about himself, that he was going to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested, he'd be crucified, and on the third day he'd rise again was true. And yet the condition Jesus finds them in is described as troubled. What's the trouble, Jesus asked. And in this final pericope of Luke's gospel, we see four points. First, the disciples' condition, the scripture's correction, the Lord's clarity, and finally, the Savior's compassion in verses 50 through 53. So let's begin with the disciples' condition. I mean their condition after the crucifixion, on that Sunday evening, after his resurrection, that first Easter morning, they've obviously gathered together. What's their emotional state? Well, in these first three verses that I read, there are four words used to describe their emotional health. Startled, frightened, troubled, and doubting. None of those are positive, are they? Now, the first one, startled, will give them a little leash on, okay? We've all been startled. When you're busy and concentrating on a task and someone walks up behind you and speaks and you jump, uh, that's an involuntary response, and so we'll give them a pass on that. It's fright over seeing something unexpected, and I don't know anyone who expects to see someone who wasn't there one second before there the next second. Because remember, Jesus is in his glorified state, He's no longer confined by, confined by physics. He can move from here to there effortlessly, including without opening doors. And apparently that's what, it, what he does, and that startles them. But the next couple of words are deeper than startled. They're frightened and troubled. To be frightened is a deeper sort of fear. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Ghost stories didn't originate around campfires in the 20th century. They've been around for thousands of years, and there were myths and rumors, and uh, they were afraid. But beyond that, they were troubled. That is, they were confused. They didn't quite understand. They hadn't put together in their mind yet what was happening here. But the real problem is that fourth descriptive word, they were doubting. They still did not believe, despite the evidence that was all around them, that it was true. So Jesus patient as always in his glorified body, still omniscient, by the way. He knew what they were thinking, knows exactly what's going on in their hearts and minds. They think this is a ghost they're seeing. They're afraid. So graciously, the Lord sets out to overcome their fears and anxieties and worries through a series of commands. First of all, he says, see. See for yourself. Look at my hands and my feet. These hands and feet that had been marred and scarred by the nails this is a man that had been crucified and is alive. And knowing that they wouldn't trust their eyes, he says, well, touch me, handle me. He told Thomas, we're told in the other gospels, to put your hand in my side. And we don't know if anyone took him up on that, but they were given the offer. Now, the Bible tells us precious little about 
our glorified bodies that we're going to receive one day. They're going to be like the one Jesus had. So about all we know about them, we find in, in Luke's gospel and a couple other passages, but it tells us quite a bit. Number one, they're going to be similar to the bodies we have here, but very different. Similar, but different. Uh, similar in the sense that Jesus made it clear that he was not a spirit. He had a body that was flesh and bone and blood, we're told in the other gospels. He had hair and teeth and a mouth. So they recognized it as a human body. And we're going to have bodies like that. He showed them his hands and feet. They still do not yet believe. Surely, we would think that would be enough. Having seen him and touched him and spoken to him, this would be enough to overcome their doubts. Luke is so gracious, isn't he? Remember what he said about those that slept while Jesus told them to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they slept out of grief. And here he says they didn't believe because of joy and amazement. Now certainly that was true that it would not be in the Bible, but I, I think there's other things too that we find in the other Gospels. They were doubtful and faithless and unbelieving. And the light does not come on instantly. These disciples, I think I would fit in very well in their group because they're kind of slow on the uptake sometimes. It takes them a while to grasp complex things. Um, kind of reminds me of the lighting in our gymnasium down here. I don't know if any of you have the, the privilege of turning on the lights in our gym. If you haven't, you need to sign up for that. <clears throat> because we're used to walking in a room after a hard day's work and turning on a light switch and instantly light fills up the room. It doesn't work that way in our gym. You have to have a special key and you have to put it in a slot and you have to find the perfect spot and if you miraculously can find that spot, you'll hear a click, and 15 minutes later, the lights come on. <laughs> they warm up over time. And this is sort of how the disciples came to understand, finally, who, who Jesus is. Uh, my family calls Starkville, Mississippi home. That's where our ancestors are buried, and we still have a place there to go home to. Probably the most famous person that ever came out of Starkville, Mississippi, was a baseball player named Cool Papa Bell. And cool Papa was known for his foot speed. He could steal a base before you knew it. And he played with one of the all-time great baseball players, a man by the name of Satchel Paige. And Satchel Paige was a character. And he uh, loved to be interviewed by the newspaper men, and they loved to interview him because he always had a good quote. And when the rumor got out about how fast Cool Papa Bell, this new player, was, they went and interviewed Satchel, and they said, Satchel, is this guy really fast? He said, well, I won't say he's fast, but he can turn out the light and be in bed before it gets dark in his room. <laughs> That's pretty fast. The disciples were the opposite of that. Their light came on very, very slowly. But isn't the Lord gracious and kind and patient with us as he was with the disciples? And he is with them. And so knowing they don't yet believe, even though they saw his scars and had the opportunity to, to touch his body and they heard his voice, he chooses to use an illustration, which is how he often taught in his earthly ministry. In verse 41, uh, that he asked them a question, have you anything here to eat? Well, uh, they were fishermen for the most part, and so guess what they found to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, seafood dinner. Uh, some of the other gospel tell us 
and a honeycomb. And I enjoy the fact that Jesus liked dessert. And so um, he took the fish and the honeycomb and he ate it before them, the scripture says. And we talked about last week the importance of sharing food in the church and how we should not diminish it because so many scriptures show that it's through fellowship around the table that intimacy and fellowship expands and it helps in our sanctification. So here's some good news for you. It doesn't end in heaven. Apparently, we're going to eat with our glorified bodies. You may say amen at any point you want to there, okay? We know at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's going to be food that is served. And so uh, here's some things we know. We, we, we're going to have flesh and bones, a real body. It's going to be similar to the ones here that we can recognize one another, but different, hear this, in that they don't wear out. They don't get cancer and they don't get sick and they don't die. And so we're so grateful for the Lord's victory over death manifested through his glorified body. Now, secondly, the scripture's correction. Remember when Jesus was walking and talking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, the way he opened their eyes was through the clear teaching of scripture. That's always how the Lord opens their eyes. Look at verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, they didn't have the New Testament in those days because these are the guys that are going to write the New Testament, among others. They had the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was divided into three major categories. There was the law of Moses, the Pentateuch we saw last week, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There were the prophets, both the major and the minor. And by the way, they're called major and minor, not because some are more important than the other. The major ones are longer in length than the minor ones. That's the only difference but they speak of the same truth. And then the Psalms, and they would sing those Psalms together. And there are many Messianic references in the book of Psalms. The most famous may be Psalm 22, where the psalmist said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words quoted by Jesus still echoing in their ears. The point is that Jesus showed them that all of the scriptures ultimately are about him. This is his story, isn't it? It is the unfolding of God's eternal redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation. Some of you remember Dr. W.A. Criswell, who for many years was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. He wrote um, and preached a series of wonderful sermons called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption that later was turned into a book, and you can still find it online, recommend it to you. And speaking of what this scarlet thread of redemption is, Criswell said this, quote, a scarlet thread of redemption is woven throughout Scripture. It traces God's unfolding plan of love to redeem fallen mankind from Genesis to Revelation. This red ribbon represents our need for an innocent blood sacrifice. Ultimately, God sent his son to die on the cross as the sacrifice for all of our sins, end quote. That is the scarlet thread. Every time a lamb was sacrificed under the old covenant system, it pointed to Jesus all the way up until Jesus' crucifixion. And that was the final, the ultimate. Hebrews says the once for all sacrifice for sins. And so let me say again what I said last week. The only reliable source of God's redemptive plan is the Bible. <clears throat> and if Jesus doesn't go outside the Bible to explain that plan, 
We shouldn't either, should we? And we dare not. Now, thirdly, the Lord's clarity. Now, there were times in Jesus' ministry where his teaching was purposely opaque, kind of hard to make out. He explained to his disciples why that was, but now he's with them. All things have been fulfilled. He's going to be blunt and absolutely clear in his instructions to them. And he says, these words are mine. He wants them to know that the same things that he taught them about himself were fulfilled in the scripture. And then he says, you, verse 48, are witnesses of these things. That is, I don't want you to ever forget this. Wherever you go, I want you to testify of the things that you've seen. And he wants them to know this is not something that he made up. These are my words. They are from me and about me. I've been consistent for the last three and a half years. You have not understood it. But now I want you to understand it clearly. Everything that Moses predicted about the Messiah, everything the prophets predicted about the Messiah, everything the psalmist predicted about the Messiah, I have fulfilled. And we don't know how long he took to explain the scriptures. I think quite a while, because there's so much in the Old Testament about the Messiah. He rewound their memories and he reminds them of what he told them time and again, that the Christ would suffer Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are here. And the gospel would go forth. That is the doctrine of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And he says, this will begin in Jerusalem. Now he's getting right to the heart of their disbelief right there. What did Cleopas say was the source of his disappointment? We had hoped it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's the same hope that all these disciples had, that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government set up an earthly kingdom, and Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel, would have an empire throughout the world. Jesus says, that's just the beginning. Your view of me is too small. He says, it will begin in Jerusalem, and what's the implication? If something begins in one place, the, the implication is it's going beyond that place, right? And we know that uh, to be true. By the way, this sounds a whole lot like Acts 1.8, doesn't it? Shouldn't surprise us because Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And we like to say around here, we aim at being an Acts 1-8 church, which says, you shall be my witnesses, yes, in Judea, in Jerusalem, and Samaria, but it doesn't end there, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is what the disciples heretofore had failed to understand. They thought it was about this little piece of land in the Middle East called Israel, but it's worldwide in its significance and its impact. And they are going to be the ones to take this message all over the world. The gospel is for all kinds of people. And he's commissioning them. He calls them his witnesses entrusting them with this truth, I believe, so that they never forget it. That's what preaching is, by the way. Peter said this in defining his own preaching in one of his epistles, that I'm determined to remind you of what you already know. I met with my interns this week and we were talking about preaching. And I said, if you study all week and you come to an interpretation of the text that you're going to preach on Sunday, that is different than any interpretation we've ever heard in the 2000 years of Christian history, don't preach it because you're about to preach some heresy. There's nothing new. We preachers don't come up with anything novel or new. We just remind you 
of what you already know. And that's what he told them to go out and tell that gospel story that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again wherever he would send them. And he never wanted them to forget this moment where he commissioned them to do so. And I don't believe any of them did forget it. How do I know? Because of those in that room that day, there was only one, John, who did not die a martyr's death. They went all over the world, but ultimately their lives ended the same way with a violent death. And John was isolated on an island in his old age. All of them suffered. Jesus predicted that. In fact, he told Simon Peter that he was going to be led where he didn't want to go, predicting his arrest and death. And you know what Peter's response was? What about John? <laughs> Jesus told him not to worry about John. Um, but that's, that's how human these men were. Jesus knew the trouble that was going to face them. He told them to fear not. How many times did Jesus tell us to fear not? I'm going to tell you how many times. I looked it up this week. You know how many times the Bible tells believers to fear not? 365 times. Do you know how many days are in a year? 365. So there's not a date on the calendar that God hasn't told you to fear not. So fear not. I'm with you, he says. Now, Luke wrote the Gospel of Acts, and Acts is part two, written to his friend Theophilus. Picks right up where Luke ends, and that is at the ascension. And so, Luke, speaking of the ascension, let's finish up with verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. Now, Luke uh, sort of skips some things here, as a historian will do sometimes, and gets right to the point. We know from what he wrote in Acts that there's a 40-day interval between that Sunday evening and when he actually ascended. And he tells us here and other places that he appeared to hundreds of witnesses, not just these 11. In fact, at one meeting, he met with 500 people in his resurrected body. So we don't know, perhaps thousands of people. And these people went all over the world telling this story. And when the Bible was written, the New Testament, many of these people were still alive, bearing testimony that Jesus was risen. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany was the little village that's where his very good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And you say, well, I thought Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. Fear not, Bethany is on the Mount of Olives. And he did ascend in their presence. But before he did, he did something very gracious. The scripture says he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now, if I were Jesus, and I taught these disciples for three and a half years and they still didn't understand, I would be tempted to lift up my hands against them too. But it wasn't to strike them, as he had every right to do. He lifted up his hands to bless them. How gracious the Lord is. And I think in lifting up his hands and blessing them, he was showing his love and his approval of them and his belief that they were going to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, these, think about these guys. They were a ragtag bunch. Fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots. None of us would have put this team together to be entrusted with the most important news in the world. By the way, Jesus didn't have a plan B. His plan was to take these guys, send them out, 
And through their testimony, people would come to faith. And then through those people, people would come to faith. And do you know what? Everyone who's a born-again Christian in this room, if it were possible, could trace our spiritual genealogy back to the Mount of Olives. Everyone in this room is saved because someone is connected all the way back to Jesus through their fulfillment of his commission to them. And what does that tell us? Now we are running our race. We have that baton of the gospel, and we are now to make sure that we firmly place it in the hands of the next generation so that when we're gone, it will continue on. That's what Peter told Timothy God's plan was. Paul had entrusted Peter, uh, Timothy with the gospel, and he told Timothy to entrust it to faithful men who will in turn entrust it to faithful men. And here we are today honoring Jack Gatewood, 70 years old, a lifetime of faithful service, and we're sad because of that, but you know what? I look out and I look at our staff, and we've got some of the finest young men I've ever known in their 20s, in their 30s that he's raising up. And they're going to be the Jack Gatewoods of their generation. And if the Lord tears his second coming, they will mentor other young men, and it'll go on and on. I, I hear pastors say sometimes, and I cringe and roll my eyes. Brothers, I don't know if we're going to have a church in 20 years. Yes, we are. God has provided in every generation, and here's how I know for sure. He says one day he's coming for his church, and if he comes for his church, he's got to have a church to come for and he will, because he has entrusted this gospel, and he continues to entrust it. And uh, whether that's a thousand years from now or two days, there will be a church for Christ to return for. Well, the primary point of this message was to be about anxiety. Last week, the subject was disappointment. And I pointed out that it is illogical and unnecessary for Christians to be ultimately disappointed. Now, the Bible's realistic. We know there's going to be disappointments in this life. That's part and parcel of the human existence. But I, I left you last week with a verse. Do you remember Romans 10, 11? And that's the conclusion of another famous verse. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But the other bookend of that is he that believes will never be disappointed. And we said that can't mean in this life, because Jesus had disappointments. It means ultimately disappointed. That if you'll hold tightly to Jesus until you die or he comes again, you will never be disappointed in heaven. Amen? So, Really anxiety, and I think about it, it's, it's really based in fear. So disappointment, I think we could define as fear about the past. That we've messed up and didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. Jesus said, you don't have to worry about your past. I've covered that with my blood. And then what the disciples were experiencing that Sunday evening was fear about the future what may happen or what might not happen. That causes us a lot of fear, but all are in the category of anxiety. And so the scripture says a summary of all fear is be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious about the past because Jesus has forgiven that. Don't be anxious about the future because he controls that. 
How do I know? Well, I'm going to leave you with one more verse. You're already at the start of the book of John. So turn over a few pages and you'll come to chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 33. Jesus summarizes in one verse everything he has taught them about himself and the gospel and their relationship to him in one verse. John 16, 33. Mark it. Memorize it. Cross-stitch it. Brand it on your heart. Jesus says to his disciples, these things, that is everything he had taught them, I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Peace is the opposite of anxiety, isn't it? In the world, hear this, you will have tribulation. Your translation may say trouble. What was the question Jesus asked the disciples when he came in the room? Why are you troubled? What's the trouble? That is, there's no reason to be troubled. There's no reason for us to be troubled about the past or the future. Why? Because I have overcome the world. <laughs> there's nothing that the world could throw at you that Jesus is not more powerful than. And that includes the thing that your friends and neighbors fear in the future more than anything else, which is their own death. They don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. But every once in a while, they have to go to a funeral. And while they're there, they're face to face with it. One day soon, that's going to be me. And it terrifies them because they don't know what the future holds. But Christians, we know who holds the future, don't we? He's more powerful than death. He's proven it through his glorified body and his ascension. Every time I'm convinced one of those apostles was arrested or beaten, they thought back in their memory bank and they remember Jesus ascending into heaven and his promise of John 14. And I'm about to tell you something. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going away. Not going to be with you in person any longer. Fear not. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. One day I'll come again. That where I am, you may be also. That's why it's illogical and unnecessary, Christian, for you to fear the future because the future for us is glory. Let's thank the Lord for that truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study of the book of Luke. It took a lot longer than I thought. Five years, but Lord, it's been a blessing. As we've seen the word of God unfold before our eyes, that before any of us were born, you had a plan to redeem people unto yourself by sending your son into the world. You sent a forerunner, John the Baptist, to announce it, to get people ready. And then in your timing, Jesus was born of a virgin and he grew up as men grow up, yet without sin, tempted in every way. And he was misunderstood and mistreated, but he never wavered from his mission, which was to die on the cross, the substitutionary atonement for all who would believe. Well, we're so grateful that Jesus was faithful. Grateful, Lord, that he opened our blind eyes just as he did the disciples and probably a lot of us see ourselves. It wasn't an instantaneous thing, though for some it might have been. For most of us, we're slow. And he was gracious and patient with us and continues to be as we grow in sanctification. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be patient with one another because of his patience with us. Help us to spur one another on to love and good works and to maturity. Father, I thank you for the sanctification that's happened in myself and in this body through the systematic verse-by-verse study of this gospel. And as we look ahead to the book of Romans in the fall, I pray you'd prepare our hearts to take us to a new level of understanding maturity as, a, as individuals and as a body. Father, I thank you that you can turn doubt and fear and anxiety and disappointment to joy and worship. You did that with those disciples, and you're doing it here. And I pray you'd continue to do it until we die or Jesus returns. And we say with the saints for 2,000 years, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.